Would you join me once again in turning to the book of Leviticus? We come this morning to Leviticus chapter 10. The account we're going to see this morning in Leviticus is a little bit different than what we have seen in most of the passages we've looked at throughout the beginning of this book, in that it's not describing specific sacrifices. It's not telling us about what the sacrifices mean and how they're performed. This is something different than the instructions which God has given to his people through Moses, through Aaron concerning how he is to be worshipped. We, hi- we find rather here a narrative. It begins at least with a story. And it's not a happy story. Let me read through verse 7 for us. We'll take it piece by piece. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. Moses called also to Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came forward and carried them, still in their tunics, to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and to his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, so that you will not die, and that he will not become wrathful against all the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting, or you will die. For the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses. Father, we turn to your word in need of you. As always, we are in need of your teaching ministry. You have provided this portion of your word for a purpose. And we desire to profit from it. Help us to that end. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things we've mentioned in our study of Leviticus and in the role of the Levitical priesthood is the difference between the Old Covenant priesthood and the New Covenant eldership. We've spoken, for instance, of the fact that only the priesthood was recognized by God under the Old Covenant as that group of people who were to offer animal sacrifices, blood sacrifices, substitutionary sacrifices on behalf of the people. 
It was a particular group comprised of only Levites who were to function in this way. Under the new covenant, elders are not priests. Under the new covenant, there is only one priesthood recognized by God, and that is the priesthood of believers. You, if you are in Christ, are a priest. I am a priest. I am no more a priest than you are. We are together the priesthood of believers. This is based on the fact that the primary role of the Levitical priest was that of mediator. In order to approach God, people were required to come by way of a priest. If we are in Christ, however, we only have one priest who mediates, and that is our high priest, Jesus Christ. So we do not need human priests. If we are in Christ, God invites us before His throne of grace, and we have a direct access to the Father because Christ Jesus is our great high priest. And so Joe and I are elders and not priests. And one reason for that distinction is that we are not your mediators. You don't need us to mediate for you because you have Jesus. And that's all you need. At the same time, there are similarities between the eldership and the priesthood. One of the significant roles with which God has commissioned Aaron and his sons was that they serve as spiritual authorities and as teachers for the people of God. If you jump down to verse 10 and 11, we read this, so as to make distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. So that was the role of the old covenant priest. He had an authoritative position, and he had a teaching position. Likewise, in the New Covenant, one of the similarities between the eldership and the Old Covenant priesthood is that the eldership puts both of those roles together as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, we read this, "...the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching." So the New Covenant eldership are responsible for ruling and for preaching and teaching. The priests of the Old Covenant had those same responsibilities, although they performed them in different ways. In effect, the priests protected the sanctity of the people through regulating and teaching godly behavior. Their role was critical to the survival of the community because they stood between the expectations of God for Israel and the sin of the people. God's expectations were that the people be holy as He is holy. The people had other ideas. They were sinners who loved their sin. There could not be continuous fellowship between the Lord and the people if priests did not exist or if they failed to carry out their ordained assignments 
properly. Symbolically, they bore the sins of the people and provided atonement through these sacrifices that we have been seeing. They bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. This is what we read in verse 17. Isaiah, too, recognized that recognized the same issue when he described the suffering servant as the one who bore the sins of many. Because Jesus is our perfect high priest, because Jesus is our sacrifice who bore our sins on the tree, he guaranteed the divine acceptance of everyone who would come and put their trust in him. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all, the securing an eternal redemption. That is, the author of Hebrews understood that what Jesus did was in fulfillment of all of the shadows of the Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus himself was both high priest and sacrifice. But because of the weaknesses of the earthly priests who served in the sanctuary, this kind of rock-solid assurance that we have today through Jesus Christ was not available to the people of Israel. And our passage today illustrates how two of Aaron's sons failed in their duty experienced divine judgment, and then how his other sons went on to complete the task. We're also going to see then how Jesus accomplished perfectly what they could not. And so in the passage that we just read, we're seeing the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and they have a duty They were mediators. They were intermediates between the Lord and the people. They were specially selected by the Lord as the children of Aaron, and yet they miserably failed in fulfilling their calling to that service. Priests were commanded to take hot coals from the main altar and use them to burn perfumed incense, which was contained in a handheld censer. The smoking incense symbolized the rising prayers of the people being offered up to God. And although Nadab and Abihu were divinely ordained laborers commissioned to do this work, they faced immediate death because of their mistreatment of holy things. They did not do what God had commanded them to do. So since the incense was part of tabernacle worship, it was holy to the Lord. And they had specific instructions concerning how the incense was to be dealt with. The fire, for the same reason, had to come from the anointed altar in the central courtyard where the Lord first ignited the fires of worship. You'll remember He did them Himself. We saw this last week. Verse 24, Then the fire came out 
of chapter 9, Then the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, as we just read here in chapter 10, our passage characterizes the fire presented by Nadab and Abihu as strange meaning that it did not come from the source which had been sanctioned by God. The word strange means unauthorized. You might even have that in some of your translations. It is foreign. It's the same word used for a person who is a stranger to a family. That is someone who is outside of the family. It also names a forbidden woman who is outside a person's marriage in Proverbs. The priests offered illicit, unauthorized fire from an undisclosed location. We don't have a word here in the passage concerning their motivation. Why would they do this? They're here, they've been getting their instructions. It hasn't been that long, they couldn't have forgotten those instructions yet. But we're not told. It's a puzzle. For the purpose of the passage, however, we don't need to know. If we did, the Lord would tell us. Clearly, that's not the point. It doesn't matter what their motivation is. Perhaps they had what they considered to be a good motivation. Perhaps they had a reason for disregarding the instruction of God. The fact that we're not told what that motivation was tells us something very important. The absence of that information tells us something very important. And what it tells us is, it doesn't matter. God's not concerned with intentions. God's not concerned with rationalization. God's concerned with obedience. Sometimes even the best intentions will take us in a dangerous direction. They believed that the specific command to present the offerings in the precise way God had prescribed to them were for some reason we're not aware of not to be done in this case. There's some reason they had convinced themselves that what God had said here, at this moment in time, in this situation, doesn't apply. I wonder if that sounds familiar to you. Because we all have this tendency to rationalize, don't we? We all have a tendency to say, I think my situation is unique. There's something different about this situation. And there never is. We like to think of ourselves as unique. We're just like everybody else. God gives his command. We don't like that command. He says do this. We'd rather do that. And our unsanctified minds immediately start working overtime to try to find a loophole. 
was that W.C. Fields, right? Was that? That was not, he was caught reading the Bible one time. And someone asked him why he was reading the Bible, because he wasn't really a Bible kind of guy. And his answer was, I'm looking for loopholes. That's what we want to do. We want to think that our situation is somehow different and what God has said doesn't apply. I have had people come into my office knowing what the Scripture says about being unequally yoked and going on and on and on with this rationalization for why in this particular case that doesn't apply. We love what we love. And we want to find a way to get what we love or to do what we love. And if the Lord says, "Uh uh-uh, then we'll come up with something. That's what was going on here, apparently. It's not that they were unaware of what God said. They just didn't like what God said. They thought... There's some reason which is sufficient for this disobedience. Ignorance was not their excuse. You you have a similar example of this, a similar kind of event taking place in the New Testament. You have a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira. And these two brought an offering into the church, which is an act of worship. So in that sense, it's the same context. But they intentionally deceived the church and they lied to the Holy Spirit. And as a result, they were struck down and the church was filled with fear, we're told. The outcome of producing fear and respect for the Lord in the church was the same outcome of the death of Aaron's sons. Nadab and Abihu were authorized, in fact, being the first and second born of Aaron's house, but they did not follow the Lord's commands completely. And they were struck dead as a result. They held the most important place in the worship of God's people. And their judgment ultimately was Death. The severity of the penalty showed the seriousness of sin in regard to the person who approaches God. What do you think this did to the people when they heard what had happened? Or in the case of some, saw what had happened. Fear would have overcome them. They would have understood At least then, if they didn't understand it before, they would now understand that God is serious about His commands. He is serious about how He is to be worshipped. They would have understood that sin exacts a cost, that the wages of sin is death. The writer to the Hebrews warned his readers not to trivialize the blood of Christ by rejecting His sacrifice, for it is, he says, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's something that we don't like to talk about anymore, do we? Judgment is a part of who God is. It flows from His holiness. And there are many who would rather not talk about that. Let's just talk about the love of God. Let's leave the judgment part out of it. You cannot do that, brothers and sisters. You don't have a gospel unless you have 
sin and judgment. You don't have a gospel unless you have an offense against a holy God. You don't have a gospel unless part of that gospel is that the wages of sin is death. We said it earlier this morning. You've got to have bad news before you can have good news. You can't get to salvation unless people know they need to be saved. People can't know that they need to be saved unless they understand the difference between them and God. God is holy and we are not. And so it was fitting what happened here. It was fitting that fire coming from the Lord consumed them since they had neglected the holy fire of God. The fire that had elicited such joy and blessing from the people initially, as we saw back in Leviticus 9, now becomes a source of death and fear. You've probably had this experience with a parent who was both benevolent and at times the necessary disciplinarian in the family. Wait till your father gets home. I heard that on more than one occasion. And what does that do? It signals that something is in store for an unruly, disobedient child. I remember sitting in my bedroom on the edge of my bed and I don't even know what I had done at the time but mom was really mad and dad was coming home and I heard the front door and when I was young and I would be really nervous my knee would just go crazy it would couldn't control it And I heard my dad come in the door, and it took a few minutes because my mother had to tell him what had happened. And then I hear the footsteps up the stairs. And that was not good. Paul reflects this idea when he speaks of the kindness and the severity of God. It's not love or holiness. God is a multifaceted God. He is a holy God that loves. But if you will not receive His love, He is a holy God who will judge. My Father loved me. I knew that. I never doubted that. I also knew my Father was going to discipline me. And somewhere in the back of my child's mind, I knew those things were connected, even if in the moment I didn't get it. If you're going to allow the Scripture to speak, that connection is inescapable. God is love. And God will sit on a throne of judgment. We ought not have any misconceptions about the Lord. He's not just this 
policeman waiting for you to fail. Jesus came to save people and not to condemn those who were already living under sin's condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the redeemed, the gospel of Christ is kindness. But those who reject the gospel will inevitably face the judgment of God. And God doesn't change. He is gracious, but He is holy. We can rejoice in knowing the Lord Jesus, our high priest, our perfect high priest. He had no sin and had complete and permanent access to God, completely accepted by God. Now, our reception into the presence of this holy God can only be through Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Paul says this in Ephesians 1, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now, can you imagine being Aaron? You have just seen your sons destroyed before you. And he keeps silent. I don't understand that at all. One might expect Aaron to have cried out in grief, in rage, in fear, but he was silent. That silent Silence alone would have underscored to the people the gravity of what they had witnessed. Perhaps Aaron discerned that it would have been somehow inappropriate for him to mourn in the sanctuary before God. After all, it was a specific instruction to Moses, which would direct him in a moment when we get down into verse 6. Now we've got a problem here because we are in a holy place and we have dead bodies. It's not a good thing. Something has to be done here because anybody who touches these dead bodies is going to be ceremonially ceremonially unclean. Even being in the presence of them is going to make one unclean. So Aaron himself could not remove the corpses, neither could Aaron's other sons because they will be required to continue to administer the sacrifices there in the tabernacle. And so some more distant relatives are called in. And they are commissioned to take the bodies away. Mishael and Elzaphan They're commanded by Moses, come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to outside the camp. And so they came forward and they carried them still in their tunics to the outside of the camp. So they grabbed them by their tunics, which apparently had not burned sufficiently that they were not capable of bearing the weight of these bodies. And like in a hammock, they just carried them out. 
And Moses says to Aaron and to his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not cover, uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, so that you will not die, and that he will not become wrathful against all in the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. That sounds cold, doesn't it? Aaron has just seen his sons killed. And Moses comes to Aaron and his other sons and says, You can't mourn. Because that's what the uncovering of the head and the tearing of the clothes was. It was mourning. Moses is telling Aaron, You can't mourn. You've got responsibilities to fulfill. Seems a little harsh. But Moses, and certainly God, is not being cold-hearted about Aaron's feelings in regard to his sons at this point, nor is he punishing Aaron for his son's behavior. God is simply saying this, Aaron has to put his relationship with God first, above everything else. Aaron's spiritual priority is to remain holy in order to carry out his duties for the sake of the people. With his privileges come the solemn and deadly responsibility. But this is nothing that we do not see in the ministry of the Savior. When one person came and asked Jesus if he could be allowed to go and bury his father before joining Jesus, Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Let the earthly things care for themselves. I'm first. Unless you hate your father and mother. And follow me. You can't be my disciple. Not literal hatred, but Jesus is making the point. He's first. God comes first. You shall not even go, verse 7 says, from the doorway of the tent of meeting, or you will die. For the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the words of Moses. The Lord then spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord had spoken to them through Moses." This is another thing that is very difficult for us to understand. We're putting ourselves in this place. God has struck down these two sons of Aaron. Moses has told Aaron, you cannot mourn. You've got responsibilities you need to fulfill. God has to come first. And you've got a responsibility not only to God, but to his people. 
And then we pick up with verse 8. And the Lord speaks directly to Aaron. Right Now this is different. Because the Lord has spoken through Moses before. Now the Lord speaks directly to Aaron. And we might expect, if we just read verse 8, and then the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, we might expect that that's going to be followed by words of comfort, solace, Aaron, sorry I had to do that. I still love you. Everything's going to be okay. And instead, the Lord says, don't drink wine or strong drink when you're coming into the tabernacle. It's as if the Lord is trying to focus Aaron on his mission. I understand you've just experienced a very traumatic event, but let's get our head back in the game. This is how seriously the Lord takes his worship and his holiness. So do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you or your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. Aaron, don't do anything that's going to make you end up like your sons. It is a perpetual statute throughout the generations. So no wine or strong drink when you come into the tabernacle. If you're not on duty, right, this is like uh, an airline pilot. <laughs> if you're not on duty, okay, you can have a drink. Not when you're about to get into the cockpit. And that's what Aaron was being told. Under normal circumstances, you're living your life, you've got your day off, whatever it may be, and you want a glass of wine, feel free but not when you're coming into the tabernacle. This is how serious this is. Repeatedly, the New Testament warns Christians about drunkenness and licentious behavior that would destroy their Christian witness. We can broaden the principle to the general admonition of the apostle to abstain from every form of evil. We are to give ourselves holy and freely to, in, in service to the kingdom and refuse to become enslaved to addictive behaviors that disable us spiritually. A sober, disciplined life is the standard which is required. And it begins all the way back here. Aaron had to be told, no wine or strong drink when you come into the tabernacle, because it's not something he would have thought about on his own. God says when you're coming in to, the, to do the work of the ministry, be in your right mind. There's got to be a distinction here between the holy and the profane, between the clean and the unclean. And as you do this, Aaron, you teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord had spoken to them concerning Moses. So the role of the priests was to discern what was ritually holy and clean and then to teach the congregation. 
but they had to be taught first. And the very first thing that they had to be taught was that the Lord comes first in all things. And that would have been very clearly and powerfully communicated to the people when they understood that even though Aaron's sons had died before him, he could not step away from the ministry which God had given to him. Now, we're going to see, and we're going to have to wait for next week for this, but we're going to see other sons of Aaron come and take the place of the two who had been struck dead, and the ministry goes on and on and on without essentially missing a beat. Because God is concerned first with his own glory, but he's also concerned with his people. And his people needed the tabernacle to function, even in circumstances such as this. God desires to be the priority of every heart and life. He not only desires it, but he demands it. It is what he is due. And when we consider what we have been forgiven and all that he has done for us and all he has given to us, it makes perfect sense. The Lord deserves our all in all. The totality of what we have and what we do and who we are. Because he is worthy. Father, thank you. You are indeed worthy. And we are grateful for all that you have done. And all that you will do, Father. Until the coming of Christ. When all things, Father, will be made right, when sin will no longer plague us, and when you will have your rightful place in the hearts of all your people, and when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord.